I'd like to turn our attention to the Old Testament reading for today. This weird encounter of Abraham with these three strange men. And I'd like you to follow along in your pew Bible. It's on page 12 in your pew Bible. Because I want to extend the reading by only a verse in Genesis chapter 18 and then look at the conclusion of the story. Draw some, uh, make some commentary and then draw some conclusions. A warning and some conclusions. The story starts off in the hot time of the day. The heat of the day. It's common in the Middle East and in other places where it gets very hot in the middle of the day for everybody to kind of lay low during that time of the day. In Latin America, they call it the siesta. In the Middle East, it's the same kind of idea. You find a place where there's some shade to rest out the hot part of the day. Maybe the servants have, have come in. Abraham's servants have come in um, to, to get their rest. Sarah, we know, is inside the tent. Um, and Abraham is sitting underneath the porch outside of his tent when some strange men show up. And the first clue that there's something strange about these men is that uh, Abraham doesn't see them walking across the desert and then up to the tent, but he lifts up his eyes and there's three men standing ahead of him. And he runs to them. He bows himself down to the earth and in, chapter, in verse 3 says, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, we're told in verse chapter 1, the Lord appears to Abraham, and then Abraham says to one of these three men, O Lord. But if you look carefully at verse 3 in your pew Bible, do you see how the word Lord there is a capital L and then three small letters, minuscule letters? When we read that word in an English translation, this is a reference to the Hebrew word Adonai which means Lord in the sense of a master or a ruler or someone who has authority over you, someone who has a higher social status than you do. When we see the word Lord in all capital letters like we do in the first verse <clears throat> of chapter 18, that's a reference, an English translation, a reference to the Hebrew name Yahweh or Jehovah. It's a direct reference to God by his personal name. And so we, the readers, are told that Yahweh, Jehovah God, is appearing to Abraham. But as far as Abraham knows now, all he knows is that there's this man of somewhat higher dignity than he, social dignity, who's passing by. And Abraham says, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So first, these three men simply appear before him. He notices something of status to them, something more dignified than of he he rushes to them, and he offers them some rest. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. We get even more of a clue here that Abraham knows there's something special about these three men. How many people here know how big a sia is? You know how you could find out? You can Google it. You certainly can. Or if you don't want to get up and walk all the way over to where your smartphone is, you can go to the very last page of the bound book, 
that, I'm not going to say the last page of the Bible, but the very last page in the bound book you hold in your hands, and there's a table of weight and measures there, which is very handy. And you scan down through there, and you see what a siya is. It's about seven quarts. I'll go ahead and do the math for you. That's more than five gallons of flour. A gallon of flour is about eight pounds of flour. And Abraham calls this a morsel of food. Abraham runs the herd and takes a calf, tender and good, the most valuable of the meat products. He gives it to a young man to prepare it. Then he takes curds and milk. That's probably a yogurt kind of drink. And he brings it to them. And, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. It's going to become more and more apparent as we move the story who, these, who at least one of these three men is. Yahweh appearing in a human form. Jehovah, God, appearing in a human form. Now, who are these other two men? Or what are we to make of these three men? Well, I don't think there's any one answer that has a scholarly consensus behind it. There's certainly, I think, a forecasting maybe or a foretelling of the Trinity here. But when you try to work through these three men and how they relate to each other in this chapter, um, well, there's all kinds of options, all right? It could be that Jehovah God is appearing with two angels or that three men are showing up and that the Lord is speaking as a result of their presence or that this, in fact, is an incarnation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it's like whichever approach you take as you work through the rest of the chapter, it just starts falling apart. Actually, a lot like the doctrine of the Trinity itself, which requires a lot of very careful, careful, precise, logical terming to figure out how these three persons fit together. I'm going to refer to them as God and two angels. Not that I'm making a dogmatic statement there, but that's the clearest way of working with, with the text, at least here. And then in verse 9, we see why God has come to visit Abraham's house. That is, he wants to make an impression on Sarah. This is the first time God is going to reveal himself to Sarah. God had already revealed himself to Abraham. By now, Sarah and Abraham are very old. Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90 years old. Now, God had shown up to Abraham before. He'd shown up 25 years earlier. It's a long time to wait between visits. If you just read Abraham's stories one after the other and don't pay attention to the timeline, it sounds like Abraham and God just hang out with each other every afternoon. But a lot of time comes between visits here. A lot of time and waiting. It's a common theme of the Abraham stories is waiting learning patience. Now, when God had shown up to Abraham, he'd shown up as a big clay pot burning a fire. A big pot of fire had shown up in the middle of the night. When he shows up to Sarah, as we're going to see, he takes a much more gentle approach. He reveals himself to Abraham as a God of power and strength and the threat of, of destruction but he's going to be much more gentle with Sarah. Why does, G why does God approach Sarah so much differently than he approaches Abraham? Because Abraham and Sarah are two different people. 
a lot of people say we can't put God in a box. Well, you can't put people in a box either. There's no one way to approach people. There's no one system to run people through. And God shows that here in his very different approaches to both Abraham 25 years earlier and now Sarah. Well, the men say to him in verse 9, verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. As is the custom for the day, the men are sitting outside under the porch and they're eating. The women are inside the tent. And the Lord, now we see the Lord with all capital letters. Now the Lord is revealing who he is. I will surely return to you. Yahweh, Jehovah, God is revealing who he is. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She's eavesdropping. Well, you probably would too. Three kind of odd characters show up. And she hears this message. One of the men says, I'll return next year and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, 190 respectively. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? There's a lot more pain here than is being revealed in the English translation. That, that, word, that phrase, um, worn out, literally means worthless, useless. Here I am, old and useless and worthless, and am I going to have the pleasure of giving my husband a son? And she laughs to herself. After I'm worn out and useless and worthless, is the Lord going to keep his promise to me? How is that going to work? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Here comes the gentle challenge. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Literally, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? But I'm afraid that English translation has lost an awful lot because the word wonderful today just means good. It's like awesome. Good. It doesn't mean very much anymore. Is there anything that's so full of wonder that God cannot do? This, this is pointing us to another story. Is there anything too hard for God to do? He's going to deliver a child of promise to Abraham. But this is pointing us to another child of promise. When the Lord promised Abraham a son, he said, through your son, all the world will be blessed. There's another son coming of the seed of Abraham who's going to bless the whole world. And at that time, we have a very similar story. You know what I'm talking about? The Annunciation to to the Virgin Mary. An angel shows up and says, you're going to conceive and have a child. And she says, how can that be? I've never had sex with a man. Do you see how it's similar? If Sarah can't have sex because she's old, Mary says, I can't have sex because I haven't, I mean, I can't, I can't have a child because I haven't had sex. How can that be? Do you remember what the angel says? Almost the same thing. With God, nothing is impossible. 
It's the same statement of disbelief and the same gentle challenge. Well, do you know who God is? And is there anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then God repeats himself. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah by now is kind of caught on to who she's talking about. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, you did laugh. God kind of chuckles at her. No, you did laugh. And that laugh is going to mean something to you about a year from now when you have a son. Let's take a look at the rest of the story. It's in Genesis 21. Just turn the page two times. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And if you can squint your eyes real tight and look down to the footnote on that page, you'll see that the word Isaac is a Hebrew word that means he laughs. They give their child the name Laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah, Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. First, I want to draw a warning about this passage. Then I want to look at what both these readings together say about Abraham and then what both of them have to say about Sarah. First, a very common reading of the story is that Abraham's been given, Abraham and Sarah have been given a task to do the impossible. But Sarah believes so hard and she has so much faith that God's able to accomplish the impossible. And if you just have enough faith and believe hard enough and pray hard enough, even the impossible can happen for you. And whatever you want will be given to you. Well, there are two problems with that reading. The first has to do with logic. One of the premises is faulty and false. It's not true that if you have faith and believe really hard and pray really hard, you'll get whatever you want. Because we know the one person who was the most prayerful, prayerful person who ever lived, the most faith-filled person who ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ. And he prayed very hard, let this cup pass from me, and it didn't pass. There's also simply a reading problem. Sarah doesn't have any faith this is going to happen at all. She laughs. That teaching, whether we call it the prosperity gospel or call it something else in a few years, uh, is all over the place and it wrecks all kinds of people's lives. 
It just isn't true. What do we learn here in this, these, all these exchanges about Abraham? Abraham feeds the strangers, especially a stranger who's an aristocrat with some stature. In the Eastern Mediterranean culture, there is an expectation of reciprocity. That if, if, if you give me something, like a nice meal while I'm traveling, then I have to arrange to give you something. And we find this all over the eastern Mediterranean world. In Homer's Iliad, there's a, a battlefield scene where two uh, soldiers, one from the, from the Greek army and one from the Trojan army, meet each other on the battlefield, and they've got their armor on, they're holding their swords, and they're going to strike each other, and one of them is going to kill the other, or they're both going to end up killing each other, which happens an awful lot in the Iliad. And uh, so before they kill each other, um, they pause and introduce each other to themse- themselves to each other, as one does. And um, the first soldier says, I am somebody, son of this guy. And the second soldier says, well, I am somebody, son of that guy. And the first soldier says, wait, wait uh, that, that guy, your father, was, is he from Sparta? Yes, my father was from Sparta, and I am a Spartan. And the first soldier says, but wait a second, I, I know who your father is. Your father and my father are gift friends. That's how Homer writes it, literally in Greek. We're gift friends. Then my father was on a business trip traveling through Sparta and ran into trouble, and your father took him in for a couple of days, gave him a place to sleep and some food, and then when he got back home, he arranged to have three barrels of wine sent to your father. We're gift friends. And they embrace each other, and they say, well, then, if our fathers were gift friends, we must be gift friends too. And so they exchange their armor right there in the middle of the battle. And then they, they embrace again, and they say, as gift friends, we promise we won't kill each other. And so they part as friends and go kill a whole bunch of other people, but they're not going to kill each other. And there's a connection there between that, that is built into the system. And I know that story comes out of ancient Greece, but there's a whole lot more cu- cultural com- commonality between Greece and Crete and the Levant... Israel and Lebanon and Syria than I would be willing to admit even 20 years ago. We're finding all kinds of connections here. And it's interesting that in this relationship, it's the only time in the Old Testament that uh, God and humans share a meal. And Abraham is the only Old Testament character who's ever called a friend of God. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that all believers are friends of God. But in terms of Old Testament characters, three times Abraham is identified as a friend of God. There's some connection now between God and Abraham. What has Abraham done? He's welcomed the stranger in. He's given them food. And the reciprocity is what? The promise is fulfilled. This child of promise will be, will be fulfilled. But I also want to look at the result of this on Sarah. Sarah's laughter. The first laugh is a laugh of skepticism and disbelief. It's a disbelief that's caused by pain. Can this useless, worthless old lady ever be able to be used by God? That's what she's laughing at. And yet, that laugh of Skepticism and disbelief becomes a laugh of joy. God has made laughter for me. 
I think there's a lesson here about what happens when we meet God. Three things about laughter. First, we're able to laugh at ourselves. Sarah says, who would have believed? In verse 7, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. Who would have thought it? I guess there are some people, if you ask them if you're a Christian, they would say, well, of course I'm a Christian. But I think if you've had a real encounter with God, there's a bit of a laugh there. It's not like, of course I'm a Christian. It's, it's I don't know how I ended up here, but yeah, I am. Who would have thought God would have chosen me? Sarah says, who would have thought that Sarah could bear a son to Abraham? But Sarah has no, of course. When you say, is Isaac your son? She never says, of course. She laughs and says, yeah, who would have thought it? Who would have ever seen it? There's a mixture here of confidence and humility. Humility and certainty. We're going to sing in the closing song, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? There's a bit of a chuckle there. Can it be that somebody like me would be called by God? There's that humility, but it's not a put-down humility. It's a humility that's grounded in certainty, but I am being touched by God. It's a complete mixture of humility and certainty. She's able to laugh at herself. Another thing is that, at least you can learn, that uh, you can laugh as other people laugh at you. Nobody else's laughter bothers you anymore. You no longer need people's approval like you used to. People no longer get in your way with their language. People say, well, you're a Christian, and Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. You don't say, well. You say, yeah, I know. I know. Come join us. We'll have another one. Yeah, 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 I, I know. Yeah, I know we're hypocrites. But look, this is what we're trying to do. The mockery and the, and the stinging, you can learn at least, goes away. As we learn, it takes Sarah a while to learn. You don't have to read too far down there before she, there's a story about someone who makes fun of an old lady breastfeeding an infant, and uh, that doesn't end well. But that's for a later sermon. But notice what um, else happens to Sarah here. She can laugh at her failures. She can take her failures seriously, but she can also laugh at them. She names her son Laughter. It's a reminder of her weakest point. At her weakest point, God reveals himself as God and says, I'm going to keep my promise. And she laughs in disbelief as a skeptic. But she calls her son laughter to remind her of that fallenness, of that complete lack of belief and rejoicing that God has taken that failure, redeemed it, and turned it into God's working in her life. Be open to God working in your life.
In Jesus' name, amen.